Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we get ready to examine freedom and equality. Well, sort of. So welcome to the show, everyone. Today, as we chase the Lincoln episode, I wanted to dive into a unique, complex element of Abe's story freedom, and the potential for equality that it creates. In many ways, Abraham Lincoln has become synonymous with the word, at least in the United States. But that got me wondering, were other areas of the world experiencing their own surge of freedom, witnessing their own social experiments unfold? Were other leaders championing freedom, like Abe, and did they possibly do a better job than he? Beyond that, we are going to look a little at what freedom meant in the United States and who else beyond but including the slaves freed by Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation experienced it in the wake of Lincoln's greatness. Hell, we're even going to take a look at the Old West. Before we dive into all that, today I am drinking a Black Russian, because I love them and it sort of made perfect sense to me, and it probably will to you as we go through the show if it doesn't already. This is a simple one. Two parts vodka, I went with my favorite, Sumon, and two parts coffee liqueur, of course I went with Kahlua, I spiced this one up with a shot of Vail Double Espresso Vodka. Because, you know, Vail's in the West. And, if you want to spice it up even more, you could add a couple splashes of Coke to your Black Russian and pour it into a highball glass, and you've got yourself a, quote, Colorado Bulldog, which is fitting for reasons you will come to understand. Now let's get to it. Freedom. The power or right to act. Agency, the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices. Structure, the fuckery that stands in the way of all of that. Freedom, like I said, is complex. It means something a little different to each of us. Some of us value certain freedoms more so than others, but for a long time people were outright deprived of it. That's pretty deep shit for the start of this episode, so let's try and lighten things up. But first... It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Lincoln talked a lot about the unfinished work. I discussed it in the Lincoln episode and others before that, as the founders themselves left their own revolution very much unfinished. But then I remembered that I also left another story unfinished, that of the Russian serf. Now, the comparison I am about to make isn't revolutionary, it isn't really new, but it is worth examining. Jumping all the way back to great number six, Catherine II of Russia, the great of great minds herself, we explored her great instruction to the nobles, or the Nakaz, in which she called for the abolition of serfdom all the way back in the 1760s. Hell, the founders wouldn't be arguing over what fraction best represents an enslaved human being for another 20 plus fucking years. Her instruction was, after edits that I'm sure disappointed her greatly, 22 chapters in length and contained 655 different articles of enlightened thinking, about which Catherine herself once wrote, quote, For the benefit of my empire, I pillaged Montesquieu without naming him in the text. I hope that if he had seen me at work, he would have forgiven this literary theft, if only for the good of 20 million people. It's not so often that our great minds are so concerned with 20 million impoverished people. Damn it, I forgot how much I adore her. I would say she did in fact have the best of intentions. 
She even decreed that serfs were human beings, but she ultimately failed to free Russia's countless serfs. But nearly 100 years later, however, her vision would become a reality in 1861 when Tsar Alexander II emancipated all of Russia's serfs. Often called Alexander the Liberator, like Abe, he seemed to be quite the emancipator. He openly criticized American slavery and desired to end serfdom as a means to modernize his own country. And as it was for Abe, it took Alexander a failure and a war to bring about social change. Here I am talking about Russia's embarrassing defeat in the Crimean War. Without diving too deep here, the Crimean War was a conflict between Russia and the dying Ottoman Empire, who was joined by a wealth of allies including France, Britain, and Piedmont Sardinia, in what turned out to be a real balance of power struggle over who would reap the most from the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, all knowing for certain that it would not be the Turks. Historian Michael Lynch notes, quote, As often happened in Russian history, it was war that forced the issue. The Russian state had entered the Crimean War in 1854 with high hopes of victory, but when this failed, he continues, it became convenient to use serfdom to explain all Russia's current weaknesses. It was responsible for military incompetence, food shortages, overpopulation, civil disorder, and industrial backwardness. The war allowed for Alexander to push through his greatest reform. Lynch notes the first step on that path would be the removal of serfdom whose manifest inefficiency benefited neither lord, peasant, nor nation. Alexander declared that despite Russia's defeat, the end of the war marked a golden moment in the nation's history. Now was the hour when every Russian under the protection of the law could begin to enjoy the fruits of his own labors. Let's look at this a little deeper. The emancipation of Russian serfs was officially decreed by the Tsar, saying, quote, that the existing condition of owning souls cannot remain unchanged. It is better to begin to destroy serfdom from above than wait until the time when it begins to destroy itself from below. Turning back to Lynch, he notes, these words have often been quoted. What is less often cited is the following sentence. I ask you, gentlemen, to figure out how all this can be carried out to completion. Basically, he was determined to emancipate the serfs, but passed the buck to the nobles and landowners, tying them directly to serfdom's undoing, making it very hard for them to pin blame on him. But how did this pan out for the serfs, and how did they in turn react to emancipation? Let's look at the numerous petitions to the Tsar himself and local governors, which reveal to us the realities, shortcomings, and even failures of emancipation, as well as a few similar trends. In 1862, just one year after emancipation, petitioners from the Balashov district petitioned their leader saying, quote, After being informed of the Imperial Manifesto, we received this news with jubilation. But from this moment, our squire ordered that the best land be cut off from the entire township. This not only denies us profit, but threatens us with a catastrophic future. Another petitioner from a different province pleaded with the Tsar directly a year later, writing, quote, Some former serf owners who desire not to improve the peasants' lives, but to oppress and ruin them, choose the best lands from all the fields for themselves, and give the poor peasants the worst and least usable lands. Petitioners were often falsely accused of rioting and instigating violence, which was often meant with military response. In both cases, the Russian government responded by punishing those that pleaded for nothing more than a fair chance. In the former case, the petitioners were, quote, threatened with exile to Siberia. The colonel in charge ordered the soldiers to strip the peasants and punish seven people by flogging in the most inhumane manner. 
The latter petitioner notes, quote, The soldiers punished up to 200 men and women. After this punishment was dealt, the magistrate that ordered it remarked, quote, If you find the land unsuitable, I do not forbid you to file petitions whenever you please. Who the fuck would petition again after being fucking flogged to the point of unconsciousness? Sadly, Alexander so feared losing the support of the nobles, what seems to be a Russian norm, that he failed to act on behalf of his people in little more than words. He compensated nobles for lost land and put land distribution in the hands of the nobles' quote, generosity. However, Alexander Chubarov, Alexander Chub, Alexander Chubarov, author of The Fragile Empire, has pointed out that Quote, the Russian emancipation was carried out in an infinitely larger scale, and was achieved without civil war and without devastation or armed coercion. It was a big step forward, but not necessarily a complete one, and not so different than Abe's emancipation efforts. Reform requires a strong leader that desires reform. In the absence of this, reform tends to fall short. And that's exactly what happened after Alexander's death. Well, that's about enough on Alexander, but that doesn't mean I'm ready to wrap this one up. I haven't fallen down nearly enough rabbit holes yet for an episode of The Chaser. And trust me, it was really hard not to chase that Crimean rabbit. The parallels between these two great minds, Abe and Alex, one of which probably won't be covered at a later date, are endless to the very end. As on March 13, 1881, nearly 20 years after his great but limited liberation of a third of Russia's population, he was assassinated by populist members of the Naradanya Volya, or People's Will, likely made up of some of the very serfs that he freed. God, I'm bad at Russian. The sad irony is that Alexander knew that his reforms were, quote, the first step towards a constitution, but he nonetheless seemed determined to continue onward with his reforms. His successor, Alexander III, much like Lincoln's successor, that asshat Andy Johnson, however, would not. But as this is the Lincoln saga, I wanted to briefly explore freedom and equality in my own country. After the Civil War, although Abe would not live to see it, freedom was realized. Three constitutional amendments, enforced by the pointy end of a bayonet, ensured liberty, power, and even equality for many Americans in the South. Freedom in the North was more easily accepted for some time, but what would freedom look like in the immediate wake of Abe's war, Abe's emancipation, and Abe's death? For many freed black Americans, new opportunities for education, political power, social rise, and enfranchisement opened many doors, all of which were met with resistance and limitations, as I mentioned in the main episode. Beyond that, many black Americans aimed to escape discrimination in the American South by moving west and becoming cattle ranchers or cowboys. As one historian notes, right after the Civil War, being a cowboy was one of the few jobs open to men of color who wanted not to serve as an elevator operator or delivery boys or other similar occupations, of course, like sharecropping. But one author, Katie, oh my god, Katie Nodjib, but another author points out, quote, African-American cowboys faced discrimination in the towns they passed through. They were barred from eating in certain restaurants or staying in certain hotels, for example. But within their crews, they found respect and a level of equality unknown to other African-Americans of the era. But black Americans weren't the only ones to seek out and find opportunities for increased freedom in the American West. You know, Lincoln and his family, they helped settle the West. But the definition of the West changed drastically over the long 19th century. Sparsely populated areas, barren deserts, and would-be ghost towns, pretty much everything you see in the movies, became the American West. 
But one key reason for the rapid settlement of the American Midwest all the way to the Rockies and beyond, as far as Montana and Utah, was the American homesteader. Now, I'm not going to go into homesteaders too much. Simply put, a homestead was a 160-acre federal land plot that one could take over, farm, and live on, slash off of, all for a modest filing fee, all granted by the Homestead Act. However, this legislation did not expressly exclude women and ended up becoming one of the more egalitarian pieces of legislation of its day. Essentially, the Homestead Act of 1862, a Lincoln legislation by the way, allowed for unmarried women to claim 80 acres of land for themselves. Of course, it had to be half of what was offered to single males, but either way, according to historian James Rourke, in the early days of settlement, female homesteaders accounted for around 5% of all that moved west, but by 1900, they accounted for upwards of 20%. In some areas, like Montana and the Dakotas, they made up about 18% of all homesteaders. Most often, these were young, single women between the ages of 21 and 25. In fact, female settlement in the Dakotas was quite young, with the majority of women there being under the age of 25. But I certainly couldn't do this. Hell, I wouldn't be brave enough to. Choosing to move to an unknown desolate area to live in a dirt house isn't quite the same as my not-so-daring 1,100-mile move from Pittsburgh to sunny Florida. So what was it like for a young single woman on a homestead? Turning to the Dakotas, where women homesteaders were most prevalent, and that's what I have the sources for, one homesteader, Bess Cobb, said, quote, Dakota has some redeeming qualities. Another female homesteader went as far as to say, I never enjoyed myself better in my life than I have this winter on my homestead. Women homesteaders started literary societies, attended social events, dances, and visited with neighbors, even if they did have to travel six miles just to chat about a book. However, Lucy Goldthorpe, a school teacher, remarked that harsh winter realities did not match her dreams of frontier living, saying, quote, it wasn't nearly as glamorous as the imagination would have it. Lucy actually had to store food and her clock in a stovepipe to prevent it from freezing during the cold winter's night. Certainly not a life for me, but it seems that most came to benefit from their homestead. In the end, this was a lonely individual experience, and an experience that for many paid off. Theona Karkin actually worked her homestead for years and then sold it. As a result, she was able to pay off all her college education. I think she described it nicely saying, quote, Life in general was dotted with hardships, but there were many good times also. My efforts on my homestead were very worthwhile and very rewarding. Karkin was, quote, proud of herself for doing it all. And in the end, she was one of more than 100,000 women that received land in their own name thanks to the Homestead Act and did it all on their own. But did anything more come of this newfound autonomy and independence for women in the American West? Well, yes, actually, and the answer to that question is suffrage. Historian Jonathan Fairchild notes, quote, what a lot of people don't realize is that the story of the Homestead Act of 1862 is closely connected to the story of women's suffrage. Nearly all the states granting women full voting rights prior to the 19th Amendment gave away land under the Homestead Act. Women homesteading in these states participated in local, statewide, and national suffrage networks. And as the ranks of land-owning women swelled between 1862 and 1920, it was these homesteading women who led the way to the 19th Amendment. Many active suffragettes, like Jeanette Rankin, were in fact homesteaders. To discuss this further, there is a great political cartoon that captures this nicely, and I will be sure to post it to the Facebook page. Now picture this. A woman resembling Lady Liberty, or Columbia, is marching west carrying with her freedom. Carrying with her freedom. What is captured in this cartoon is that the idea of women's suffrage started in the west. 
Women were voting and being elected to office in the West decades before national voting rights were secured for the better sex in 1920. Historians have argued that the very autonomy, freedom, and independence that women took for themselves as a result of the Homestead Act spawned a sort of natural shift in the West that sluggishly moved eastward. By 1918, only New York and Michigan had granted full women's suffrage in the eastern half of the country, but it would be granted to women from Kansas all the way to California by the early 1910s. Hell, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho had granted women full voting rights in the late 19th century. The reality is that women paid property taxes on their land, and eventually this led many to raise the old battle cry of independence, no taxation without representation, which makes perfect fucking sense to me. And I feel I would be failing you a little if I didn't quickly tell you the amazing story of Susanna M. Salter. So Salter's story is amazing. Setting the scene, a mayoral mayor, race, a mayoral, mm, apparently I can't fucking say that word. Setting the scene, there is a race for the mayor underway in Argonia, Kansas, a town that even today boasts a population of 500 people, only growing by 150 people in the past 150 years. And female involvement in politics in the late 1800s was on the rise, and the men of Argonia didn't really like that, so they thought it would be just hilarious to put Salter's name on the ballot as a joke to deter women from voting and participating in politics. Salter didn't even know that she was on the ballot before the polls opened that day, but on election day she agreed to accept the position if she won. This led female voters, specifically of the Women's Temperance Union, to abandon the candidate they had previously supported in favor of Salter, who won the election getting 60% of the vote. Now that is fucking hilarious. Salter was America's first female mayor, and one of the first women to hold political office. She would only serve one rather uneventful year as mayor, but it was said to be one of true focus and strength. She chose not to run for re-election the following year, and instead moved to Oklahoma with her husband. She would live out the rest of her long life there, until she died at age 101. Well, I'd say that is about enough. A little long for a chaser, but I made like three black Russians, so I had to find a reason to drink them. Speaking of, this is fucking fantastic. The Vail Double Espresso gives it a richer coffee flavor and a double vodka kick. And of course, Sumon is fantastic vodka itself, so it made it even more enjoyable, and the Kahlua, you know, it's just fun. I'm giving this black Russian five points for taste. Harder to rate for price, as I went again with the airplane bottles for Vale and Kahlua, which, by the way, you can find cheaper brands of. It really comes down to the price of vodka for this one, and, you know, I always choose Sumon every time, keeping this drink reasonable. Low price and a few cheap, but very good ingredients. Five points for price. And what do you want me to say? I had three of these fucking things. I have to give it six points for returnability. Good time. My Black Russian leaves the show with 16 out of 18 points and six crowns. High rank, low cost. Well, that's it. If you enjoy Drinks with Great Minds in History, then follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. There you can get a round of DGMH daily. If you love the show and want access to even more content, then be sure to visit the DGMH Patreon page with content available to all supporters from the $1 level and up. Please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and as always, thanks for listening. Well, let's wrap this up. Freedom is tricky. It's easy to make promises of it, but it seems much harder to see it through to true equality. The irony is that we don't really get to know exactly how Abe or Alexander would have acted in the end, as both were assassinated. Alexander did, however, have 20 years of time to act on the freedom he promised before his death. These two great minds, they were the structure. They had the agency, and in the end, I guess they did the best they could to secure freedom, if not full true equality. So yeah, cheers. Cheers.